Hi everyone, this is Louis Malmadrona, and tonight I'm going to be talking a bit about my views about bipolar disorder. And I had a guest who was going to join us, but they had a problem come up, so it's just me tonight. So, um, hopefully we'll have some fun. So, bipolar disorder has an estimated 12-month prevalence of 1.2%, and it's ranked by the World Health Organization as the fifth leading cause of disease burden among mental disorders. And of course, as we'll talk about more tonight, the subjective burden is not always encompassed by the current diagnostic criteria. So the diagnosis is based on a cluster of symptoms and characteristics of the clinical course that reflects final common pathways, but not necessarily how you get there. This is from Guglielmo and colleagues, 2021. And the boundaries between bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and between bipolar disorder and recurrent major depression are not at all distinct and quite, in fact, quite blurry. So um, this heterogeneity, meaning like all kinds of things mixed together in the current classification scheme is thought by Guglielmo and colleagues to be a reason for the limited success of clinical studies for the treatment of bipolar disorder. And they point out that psychiatry, unlike any other area of medicine, suffers from a diagnostic and classification system that is not based on pathophysiology and etiology, but instead on more botanical type classification, consensus opinion, psychometric testing, and clinical usefulness, which may or may not be the case. So I want to look at some bipolar symptoms now and some of the brain areas that may be involved in those symptoms. So we have um, impulsivity is a prime symptom, mood instability, and suicidality. And many people think they have bipolar disorder if they're happy and sad in the same day. That's called emotional lability, and sometimes it's called life. Many people are happy and sad in the same day. So mood instability refers to a more pervasive and longer-term pattern of highs and lows, not in the same day, but over the course of multiple days or months. So the, this, these symptoms, which relate to dysregulation of emotional reactivity, um, are associated with the prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex, which is also associated with dysregulation of motivation and reward. Some other symptoms include um, abnormal social behavior, 
so your error detection system for social behavior is offline. Circadian instability, sleep-wake cycle is disturbed. Mania, and of course, most people know what that is. Uh, and, and again, dysregulated emotions. So this, these sort of symptoms are connected to the amygdala and the hypothalamus. Um, some other things that we see in bipolar disorder are verbal memory deficits, high reward sensitivity, dysfunction of attention and executive function, um, impaired facial expression recognition, and so forth. <clears throat> so, um, let's see. So there, there are structural brain changes that can be associated with bipolar disorder, but also with a number of other things, such as early onset recurrent depression, late life depression associated with neurological disorders, and so forth. And these changes take place within the limbic, cortical, striatal, palatal, dynamic connected pathways. And, and this is a diagram of these pathways which are also heavily involved in narrative, in story production and comprehension. So, um, so some of these structures have volume loss in, in um, bipolar disorder. And some of the reasons proposed to explain this has to do with glucocorticoid neurotoxicity, decreased amounts of brain-derived growth factor, decreased neurogenesis, and loss of brain plasticity. So, more pictures of the brain. Love the brain. So, um, so the DSMs have, have, according to Vienna and Phillips, um, confused the relationship between psychosis and bipolar disorder. And they believe that the DSMs, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manuals of the American Psychiatric Association, the official diagnostic manuals, have reinforced the wrong idea that psychotic symptoms are a core feature of schizophrenia, but not bipolar disorder. And uh, Vienna and Phillips believe that they can be present in both, and that it's important to wonder if psychotic symptoms in schizophrenia are mood congruent or incongruent with the dominant mood, just as one wonders in bipolar disorder. And of course, I should add that from their perspective, the, the schizoaffective diagnosis is meaningless, and that both bipolar disorder and schizophrenia have psychotic, can have psychotic features.
So, um, so the imaging data is consistent with overlap between the diagnostic categories that include psychoses, with some t distinctions. <coughs> Schizophrenia is more is more associated with volume loss in the left frontal striatal thalamic areas and the temporal areas, whereas bipolar disorder is more associated with volume loss in the right anterior cingulate cortex and in the ventral striatum. And by the way, when people talk about brain areas, it, it's really useful to have 3D Brain on your phone, which is an app that's produced by Cold Spring Laboratories, I believe. But if you just go to the App Store and type in 3D Brain, it'll come up and you can look at the brain when people name these areas and turn them around and look at them upside down and see where they are. And it's a tremendous aid to memory. <coughs> and both conditions are associated with volume loss in frontal and temporoparietal cortex. So, um, most prominent brain abnormality in bipolar disorder is enlargement of the, the amygdala. But other areas can, can show changes, including the hippocampus, frontal lobe, cerebellum, and pituitary gland. But none of these findings are specific enough to be used for diagnostic purposes. And um, many patients do not fit into a neat category due to the artificial boundaries imposed by the DSM and the holes between them. So many patients don't achieve enough severity or duration of symptoms to qualify for the full picture despite suffering from similar consequences as those with the whole syndrome. And many patients fulfill the criteria for multiple diagnoses because of tremendous symptom overlap and can end up with as many as 10 different diagnoses. With as many as 10 different diagnoses. So, <clears throat> it's complicated. And it's been discovered that there's a tremendous overlap between what's being called ADHD and bipolar disorder and um, major depression. So, um, so how does DSM cope with these problems? Well, it allows for switching the diagnosis after each episode. So from unipolar to bipolar after a manic episode. It allows broad categories such as not otherwise specified, which almost everyone has these days. And of course, how can a diagnostic system be reliable if everyone is not otherwise specified? It allows the inclusion of milder categories within a spectrum, such as bipolar 2, and allows for people to have multiple diagnoses, which is sloppy when you think about it. And so, um, what seems to be more useful is a dimensional approach, which is consistent with what 
the National Institutes of Health are discussing in terms of what they're calling research domain criteria, which is trying to map symptoms to dysfunctions in brain regions. And that may be beyond our scope tonight, but we'll go there at a later date. And so the, the notion of dimensional approaches is that people are on continuums and there are multiple continuums and where you are on this continuum can have important implications. And sadly, this dimensional approach, approach doesn't necessarily jive with insurance reimbursement, government reimbursement, and so forth. But the DSM-style approach of categories is unsatisfactory in terms of validity, and it has problems such as inflated comorbidity rates and a growing number of diagnostic categories. And uh, Vieta and Phillips note that psychiatry is the only medical specialty where the number of conditions is continually increasing rather than decreasing. So um, let's talk a little bit about pharmacological treatment. And I, I spoke at more length about this um, in my talk about understanding prescribing medications. But let's remember some of that. So what are the treatments? Well, um, the so-called antipsychotics, which um, work on a number of neurotransmitters, but commonly dopamine, and the anticonvulsants, which are predominantly um, inhibitors of the sodium channel and have the effect of slowing everything down slowing down brain processing, slowing down your thinking. There's lithium, which is its own category. And um, really those are the major categories. And it's, it's generally thought that the so-called antidepressants can induce manic episodes and should be avoided for the most part in bipolar disorder. So, um, some examples of clinical trials. Um, mostly there's no difference between um, antipsychotic medications for bipolar disorder. It's all about side effects. And um, to my knowledge, Loracidone has the fewest side effects, and Risperidone and um, Olanzapine have the most side effects of the uh, second generation drugs, and um, Haloperidol has the most side effects of the first generation drugs, but all can work. They're equally effective. First-generation drugs have motor side effects, 
second generation metabolic side effects, diabetes. And um, so most studies have shown no difference between lower and higher doses of medications on improvement, response, and remission rate. Though higher doses produce initial sedation, which may be useful in the acute care setting. And sadly, many times in our current short-term hospitalization model, people begin with higher doses and are never willing to reduce that dose, even though studies have shown equivalence. And um, so higher doses cause more adverse effects and result in more discontinuations than lower doses. And that's an important distinction. So um, what about anticonvulsants? Also effective. And um, some of the some of the medications are uh, valproic acid or Depakote, carbamazepine or Tegretol, um, oxcarbazepine or trileptal, lamictal, which is lamotrigine, topiramate, which is topamax, and to a lesser extent, gabapentin and pregabalin. Kepra is the one anticonvulsant which seems to have no psychiatric benefit and lots of psychiatric side effects. So, uh, and of course lithium. So those are the, the medications that people are using. <clears throat> now, um, rough, only roughly 50% of patients diagnosed with bipolar disorder respond to medication at any given time. So the medications are not terribly effective, all things considered. I mean, they can be tremendously effective for particular individuals, but statistically speaking, 50% um, of people are not responding at any given time. And can people get by without medication? This is a question we've looked at, and um, I've accumulated a case series of people, which I published, of, of, who have managed bipolar successfully without medication, and of course a group who weren't so successful for comparison purposes. And um, so what are the factors that contribute? to a lack of success in managing without medication. So one, insufficient social support and lack of an early warning system to let people know that their judgment was leaving the building and that they needed intensification of help. And so what this requires is a mental health advance directive and also letters that people write to themselves and give to their network to give to them when their judgment disappears. Because when your judgment disappears, 
You don't know that your judgment had disappeared. You think you're perfectly fine. And you think the people around you who are telling you that you're perfectly not fine are wrong. And so this is crucial. Um, also, people who avoid interventions that address the psychological dimension tend to fail. Also, avoidance of interventions that address the brain-body axis tend to fail. So, um, so how about some stories of people who have been successful? So, it takes a village. It requires the cooperation of family and friends and a significant commitment of time and energy on everyone's part. Successful strategies always involve multiple levels of intervention. They may include multi-nutrients, psychotherapies, yoga, biofeedback, neurofeedback, physical exercise, traditional Chinese medicine, qigong, and more things than I can imagine or think of at this very moment. And um, so here's an interesting study that looked at um, multi-nutrients and bipolar disorder. And they were looking at the medications that people were taking. And you can see that uh, some of the ones that I mentioned, uh, including a significant number of antidepressants, uh, which is the first category, reuptake inhibitors. Um, and then anticonvulsants are often called mood stabilizers. Not quite sure why, um, but they are. And so there's lithium valproic acid or divalproic acid, lamotrigine, gabapentin. And then um, people. some people were also taking benzodiazepines. So, um, so people um, taking multinutrients substantially reduced their, the percent taking medication at, at three months and then again at six months. So um, that's quite interesting. And, and this shows the median, or 50 percentile. And it seems like most of the effect comes on at three months. And um, so we see um, symptom severity decreasing. So, um, so multinutrients can be really helpful. Now, sadly, uh, most of our clients can't afford multinutrients, and main care or Medicaid doesn't cover them, nor does Medicare. And so it's just not an option. Um, so what about psychotherapy? And um, this is a review by Milklowitz, and um, it showed that family therapy, interpersonal therapy, 
and systemic therapy were the most effective in preventing recurrences when initiated after an acute episode. And cognitive behavior therapy and group psychotherapy were most effective when initiated during a period of recovery. And um, family therapy and cognitive behavior therapy were more effective for depressive than manic symptoms. So, um, so psychotherapy improves outcome over a period of two years and um, is important to include in the overall treatment plan. Um, here's an interesting a manual that I recommend, Structured Group Psychotherapy for Bipolar Disorder, the Life Goals Program by Bauer and McBride. And, and there's a number of these that can be used. Cognitive Behavior Therapy, pretty much everyone is familiar with that. Um, <clears throat> but the idea is to, is to recognize negative thoughts and behavior patterns and change them. And, and in many ways, it's very related to Buddhist principles and to DBT, or dialectical behavior therapy, which is even more uh, grounded in Buddhist principles than cognitive behavior therapy. Um, but the goals are to recognize manic episodes early and to change behaviors early. And, and to develop behaviors and thoughts that offset negative moods. Family therapy, of course, um, first steps involve um, the patient and the family agreeing to a care plan, to a crisis management plan, or what's sometimes called mental health advance directive for maintaining emotional stability. And everyone agrees on what's going to happen during an acute episode, including um, when to call for hospitalization, when to call for welfare checks by the police, um, etc. And of course, simply listening attentively and being empathetic is very helpful. And also providing support for family members can be very helpful, including support groups and internet uh, discussion groups. And finally, changing family dynamics and interpersonal relationship patterns that foster breakdown and maintain chaos is really important. So uh, interpersonal therapy looks at um, learning how to avoid problems in one's personal relationships and learning how to maintain social rhythms. So um, learning how to maintain a good sleep pattern, learning how to maintain uh, regular eating. And it turns out that when interpersonal problems such as family disputes disrupt daily routines and social rhythms, people are more susceptible to exacerbation of bipolar disorder. 
So regular schedules of daily activities can reduce those triggers and improve emotional stability. And also, of course, learning how to deal with other people. Learning interpersonal skills is very important. Exercise. Exercise is good for everything. Increases feelings of well-being. Um, helps to maintain normal weight. Sleep hygiene. Very important. One of the one of the early warning signs of a manic episode is reduction in the amount of sleep. And and I often have people keep a sleep diary and call me if they see that their sleep is progressively decreasing every night. And getting people to sleep reduces exacerbations. Diet. Diet's important for everything, too. Um, so low in saturated fatty acids, rich in whole grains, fresh fruits, and vegetables. Sounds like the Mediterranean diet, which is good for everything. Um, and also omega-3 fatty acids. So it's found in mackerel, sardines, salmon, and bluefish. Also anchovies. And um, probably easier to take in a flavorless liquid form than eating all the fish you would need to eat to get enough omega-3 to affect the mood, which is between two and four grams of EPA, or eicosapentaenoic acid, per day. It does take a village, and it takes high levels of support from family and community with, with immediate feedback at signs of mania or returning depression, with the inclusion of psychotherapeutic and psychosocial interventions, and in traditional indigenous communities, spiritual practices. So here's a, here's a story about someone that we'll call Daniel. And Daniel, like most people with bipolar disorder, spent 85% of his time depressed. Unfortunately, the few times that he had become elatedly happy with an expansive mood, he behaved so bizarrely as to be put in jail. And his um, episodes of mania had spiritual themes in which he would feel powerful historic ancestors speaking through him. And not everyone wanted to hear from those powerful ancestors. But nevertheless, he felt pressure to talk for these spirits and would inevitably say more to people than they wanted to hear, making them uncomfortable. So at the extremes of his elation, he would try to help political figures do right, which inevitably got him arrested. So uh, the prime minister didn't want to hear a lecture channeled from Big Bear, the famous Cree leader who had fought against taking treaty with the crown. And the prime minister has a bunch of policemen around him to prevent his receiving historical lessons. And that was how Daniel got to jail. And Daniel really was bitter about the trauma of being tied up and secluded both in jails and hospitals. So I suggested to Daniel that he, he needed to consult an elder. And 
And I said, what would Big Bear say if he was speaking through you right now? Daniel said, he would tell me to get to an elder. So uh, we found an elder on a nearby reserve and it was almost time for sundance on that reserve. And this elder was involved in that ceremony. And so I suggested that Daniel go. And so um, I introduced Daniel to, to Nick before it was time for Nick to get it completely involved in the dance, which is a four-day ceremony in which the dancers avoid food and water. The dance is focused around the Tree of Life, which is a place in the middle of the dance grounds the day before the dance begins. And a, a steady stream of people show up to be doctored by the leaders at the Tree of Life while the, dancer, while the dancing proceeds. So uh, Daniel made his way to the Tree of Life during one of these dances, joining the line of people coming to the trees some of them in wheelchairs, some using crutches or canes. Some were children being carried in the arms of their parents. And the elder, uh, Dr. Daniel, for a long time at the tree, assisted by other elders. And um, so after the dance, Daniel decided to move back to his reserve, which was near Nick's reserve, uh, to, to be closer to a healing community. And by a year later, he was much better. His moods were tolerable. He was off all drugs. He changed his stories about his identity. He turned to the traditional stories. Uh, he no longer believed it was inevitable that he would collapse into depression. He said he'd seen the abbess and the spirits had carried him out of it. And, and so he had new knowledge about balance and harmony, and also, maybe more importantly, community. He, he had become part of a spiritual community, and he was constantly able to participate in ceremony and in, and in community interactions. And within that context, formed new and more healing relationships less conflictual relationships. And, um, and so um, that worked for him. And this is, you know, what we're talking about is individualized medicine, which is what elders do. Um, and I remember in a prior podcast talking with um, Walter uh, Lindstrom about um, his work with elders and how they would come up with a whole different plan for people with the same allopathic diagnosis. And it's because they're not treating allopathic diagnoses. They're treating a, in a different, from a different coordinate system. And they're not applying um, treatments in a cookbook fashion from a diagnosis like bio, biomedical therapies. Um, they're creating plans unique to the people with whom they're working. And, and so um, we know that the social environment can radically change the brain. And 
that neuronal activity is socially constructed and our brain requires relationships, human relationships to mature. And the really tragic uh, studies about this come from uh, Bulgarian orphans who, were, who have been raised sometimes to, to as old as age seven or eight without, with virtually no human contact. And, and um, they come across as severely autistic. So our social relationships can change the connections within our nervous system, can change blood flow in our brains, metabolism, and can transform who we think we are. And so, um, so we want to we want to find positive alternatives, good stories for people to live by, healing social relationships because our social relationships are more powerful in changing our brains than medications. Though I have nothing against medications as a bridge for people while they, while they develop and nurture social relationships, and some people forever. And there's, there's no judgment there um, at all. So, um, so my perspective is that um, much of what is called mental illness results from having and performing deficient stories for living in the world or not having a story at all with which to make sense of the world and operate it in it effectively. And stories come arise from relationships. So the more relationships we have, the more stories we have. And I think this is a really would signal a profound shift from thinking about abnormal brains to thinking about disturbed social relationships and improvement in brains from neuroplasticity. And um, Raymond Marr, who's a neuroscientist at York University in Toronto, has uh, looked at the literature and and concluded that nothing activates more areas of the brain than a good story. And even with multiple areas of brain damage, we usually retain our ability to appreciate and tell a good story. So, um, so maybe stories rather than individuals should be our fundamental unit of discourse. And many people share the same stories, which are cultural stories. and. Other stories are unique for each person. Some stories work really well, others barely work at all. And from infancy, we're looking to command the attention of others and to shape it more finely to get what we want, including a sense of belonging to a community that cares about us. And if we don't have the skills to do that, and stories tell us how to do that, we suffer and may come to be diagnosed as mentally ill. So sometimes deficient stories result from brain environment mismatches. Um, and Marianne Wolf, a dyslexia expert at Boston University, has written about the mismatch of the brains of children's who, children who have difficulty reading and the environment of the printed word. 
and she wrote, I look at dyslexia as a daily reminder that very different organizations of the brain are possible. Some organizations may not work well for reading it or critical for the creation of buildings and art and the recognition of patterns, whether on ancient battlefields or in biopsy slides. So then, if we believe more, then stories form our brains. And when story is imposed on our stories, it changes the way we make meaning of the world. Brian Boyd, who's at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, says, stories help train us to explore possibility as well as actuality, effortlessly and even playfully. And that capacity makes all the difference. So this is why our job in working with desperately suffering people is to restore their capacity to make stories and tell stories, progressively shaping those stories toward ones that allow them to live and work and love in a world of other human beings and to be happy. And uh, traditional healers have been offering sufferers other stories to explain their suffering for centuries, and they still are. So we're back to the idea of listening, the deep listening. And Jacques Lacan, the French psychoanalyst, wrote that the greatest gift we can give another person is to listen without judgment or interpretation, to be free in our listening of all theories and presuppositions so as to really hear the other person. This, he said, is a priceless gift. <clears throat> and, and I believe, as did Artie Lang, the Scottish psychiatrist who studied psychosis extensively, that people's lived experiences, whether they're manic, depressed, or whatever, psychotic, uh, are valid lived experiences rather than medical symptoms and that we need to listen to them. One of, one of my heroes is Lauren Mosher, an American psychiatrist, who brought together, who formed communities of recovery and studied them extensively, finding excellent outcomes in comparison to conventional hospitalization for people with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. And he began he came to believe that psychiatric hospitals were not very good places in which to be insane. He talked about authoritarianism, the degradation ceremony, the induction and perpetuation of powerlessness, unnecessary dependency, labeling, and the primacy of institutional needs over those of the people it, it was ostensibly there to serve. And, and so he, he looked for healing environments, and he created the Soteria Project, safe houses for people who suffered in living daily life. Soteria comes from a Greek word meaning salvation or deliverance. And Mosher showed that psychotic people responded to positive social relationships embedded in an expectation that they would respond to those relationships and stop being psychotic 
and that the psychotic experience would be transformed through the dialogue into something meaningful and valuable to the person. So he showed that 85 to 90 percent of acute and long-term clients deemed to need hospitalization could recover in the community in these alternative settings. And uh, including frequent flyers to hospital, um, people treated in these supportive social environments uh, improved as much as hospital-treated patients and at much lower costs. He did a, a two-year follow-up study of public sector clients in the San Francisco Bay Area and found that the outcomes were much better than conventional hospitalization. So social engineering is more effective than biochemical engineering in controlling biology. Our brains respond better to beneficial environmental changes and warm, loving human relationships than they do to external biochemical manipulation. Um, so people who can manage bipolar disorder successfully without medication share stories with family and community members that create a belief in their success. And that's the end of that, of the slides. But, um, so what I really want to say is that yes, um, I, I give medication to people with bipolar disorder. And yes, I like to minimize the doses of that medication. And that we can do that uh, more effectively when we address all levels of the person's being and life, and especially their social relationships and their social environment. And to the extent we do that, we can make medications much more effective, sometimes even unnecessary, and we can dramatically reduce people's suffering. And so, that's all I'm going to say for tonight. I invite you to dialogue with me and uh, to continue listening and watching. Thank you.